In episode 138 of the Futurized podcast, the topic is the future of melanoma research. Our guest is Professor David Fisher, Chairman of the Department of Dermatology and Director of the Melanoma Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. In this conversation, we talk about the evolution of melanoma research and the advances made in recent years. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are found at futurize.org episodes. And these are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work or health. And that'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic that they're familiar with or want to go deeper in. The host of this podcast, Trun Arne Unheim, is the author of Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, Leadership from Below, and uh, for an overview, go to Trond's books at trondunheim.com books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors, and to check them out, go to futurize.org sponsors. Before you do anything else, please make sure you subscribe to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thank you. Let's begin. David, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you to talk about the future of melanoma research and a little bit about the past. But uh, before that, I, I wanted to begin with you. So, David, you uh, you actually grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I understand your your father was an academic or is an academic, and, and then your mother has this musical background. That's, that's interesting. So you, you were torn between the two. Yes, I, I guess I became uh, a bit of a chimera, <laughs> some some scientist and partly scientist, partly musician. That's correct. Exactly. Yeah, so you went to Swarthmore and then you still you actually studied uh, cello at the Curtis Institute, um, and then you went on to Cornell, I understand, and then Rockefeller University for your PhD, uh, and you briefly uh, you know turned to MIT with uh, Philip Sharp there, I, th- I understand. Uh, and then professionally, if I'm correct here, you've been at uh, Dana-Farber's Melanoma Lab for, for a good good amount of your career. And then you moved over to MGH and obviously lead uh, dermatology and, and have your own lab. And I'm sure a bunch of other things we can get into. Uh, does that kind of cover in like very rough sketches where you've been? I think it does a great job of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's kick it off with this then. Your choice between medicine and music, which I guess... In a way you made, and in a way, in a way you haven't made. Tell tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, they're very different worlds, but they're very complementary worlds. And um, and I found when I was little, um, music was very challenging. And you know, learning a, a stringed instrument like the cello is uh, is is a ton of discipline, a lot of hard practice, um, learning the repertoire, and 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 trying to play you know as well as you possibly can. Um, was a lot of work, and I had teachers along the way who pushed me probably harder than any teacher I've ever, ever had in any field at all. Um, and uh, and I think I learned from them uh, how to apply myself, how to think of a problem, uh, you know, kind of frame it in a in a fashion that I would be able to address and and you know get closer to you know real solutions. I I'm I'm using the music analogy as it has ended up applying to my my current professional life. Um, but for a period of time when I was in music conservatory and then even back later when I was in medical school and graduate school, I did play a lot. I, I actually 
made a little money doing it and had a chamber group that performed a lot. And and so um, there, there was a component of that that was extremely close to my heart. I was much more capable as a musician for many years than I was as a scientist and well before I was a doctor. And, uh, and that was enormously gratifying. I could do this in my early 20s and, uh, you know, pretend that I was a real thing, whereas it took a lot more years and a lot more challenge to, to be able to do that as a scientist or as a doctor. That's uh, that's funny. A lot of people would would kind of say the opposite, right? It took them forever to become a musician, but yeah. they knew knew other things. But they wanted to. They loved music. I love that twist on 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 your story. So so then, but then you you kind of made a, a choice in the sense that I mean, arguably, you've spent more time the last uh, decades on on medicine than on music. Even though I understand you you are also keeping it up, I guess. And, and you've been doing things for, uh, you know, throughout your career with, with the cello, which I think is, is enormously impressive. Would you, do you feel like you're getting actual intellectual stimulation that you can cross pollinate? I mean, is your, is any of your thinking or your pedagogical practice, is, is there a transition? Is there a way that you can use your music? I think it's, um, it's, it's really become a different part of my brain at this stage of the game. There's a, you know, I think I, I practiced so hard and I became so technically focused and, and I guess relatively proficient at playing music, playing cello and chamber music and solo pieces and things of that nature. It, it, it differentiated itself from what later on became a much more complex intellectual exercise. I, I'm sure it's equally complex, maybe more complex even, but I never really needed to analyze it the way I analyze the science, you know, behind areas of medicine that I have focused in greatly. Um, but I, I do now enjoy the complementarity of them enormously. It's it's such a relief um, in both directions. It's a relief, you know, from science to be able to enjoy music. And it's frankly a relief from music to be able to put the instrument down and, and you know, think about science and think about medicine. So there, it's a, it's a huge privilege I think I've had to be able to dabble in both. Yeah, I, I wanted to start there just because I, Arguably, I mean, this is hard to prove, but you, you certainly, when you, when you have two different parts of your brain working, you're ideally, uh, you know, you get better at each. Uh, so, so let's get into the science then. So um, your field is melanoma research very, very broadly. Um, and we'll, we'll get to what your lab is doing, you know, in a little while, but I wanted to kind of get there by, by the history of melanoma, which I find arduous. And, uh, you know, for lots of reasons, uh, obviously, personally, also, since I'm one that has been affected by it in, in my family, as I'm sure you have many, many, many patients that, that have these stories. Why, arguably, is this story so long? And maybe you can take us back a little bit. I, I found some papers uh, discussing, you know, early, early attempts to characterize, uh, you know, abnormalities in skin back in the 17th, 18th century. But... Uh, but then there wasn't much progress. Where where was the start of this? Who was, in, in your opinion, kind of the one to two precursors that actually started to describe something that later became relevant to, to what we're dealing with today? So um, I, I do have to apologize in advance that, that I, I don't want to cite a name of an individual, although I'm sure they're long gone from this earth. Um, so it, they, they wouldn't personally be angry at me. But I, I do actually have a, a, a fascination with the 
maybe we would call it the ancient history of melanoma, which is a feature of this particular disease that sets it apart from almost any other disease, for certainly any other cancer. And that is that long before people had pathology diagnostic skills, they could be quite accurate in diagnosing melanoma. Long before they could discriminate a sarcoma from a bladder cancer or lung cancer, stomach, colon, breast, prostate, they were probably right about the diagnosis of melanoma. Was this even before microscopes or any of the yeah. technicalities? They were just pure eyesight, basically. Because it was black. It was making melanin. And there are very few diseases, very few cancers. And, and I should actually say, by no means is melanoma the absolute only lesion that is black. There are others that are, which are benign, where many of us have moles. They're not melanoma by any means. There are... There are even tumors that are not melanoma that are black, that can be in our skin, for example, and stimulate normal melanocytes to make melanin. All of that does exist. But the constellation of a life-threatening disease, very obvious features of cancer, where that cancer is making dark melanin, is something that has probably been recognized for centuries and accurately classified as what we now call melanoma. And of course, there are many, many subtleties to different subtypes of melanomas. Some melanomas actually don't make dark pigment. Um, others make some and not in other portions that can be heterogeneous and so on. But as a, as a disease, I think it was actually one of the earliest cancers that was probably accurately classified. And because of that, there, there was at least one feature in the natural history of the disease that I, I think probably a, a 130, 150 years ago already set the stage for what we now are using to treat melanoma, which is immune therapy. And, and I think that's, that's a, there's a, fa a fantastically interesting story, which is also instructive in how biomedical research was carried out in an era where there were very few tools. Hmm. Um, and I'm happy to, to share that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear that. Um, I just wanted to quote that one of the things I found in my little uh, quick historical study of melanoma was, you know, by 1854, this guy Samuel Cooper was quoted as recognizing melanoma as untreatable. And I think, you know, that word has has been there, not just in the literature, but it's been uttered by by doctors to many many patients. And for a while, yes, they may have categorized it well, but it was, I guess, seen in the medical community also as very, very difficult to, to treat for some reason. How do you, well, uh, you know, give us your story and then we can, we can get into to my point there. But I'm just saying, even back, uh, you know, in 1844, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly something they would love to, they, they didn't exactly have the solution to it. That is um, right. That is right. And, you know, of course, treatable in those days probably consisted of, I don't know, leeches and maybe a, a sharp instrument or something, but not exactly a sophisticated collection of options, unfortunately. Right. Um, so so the, the natural history of melanoma, the story that I find so remarkable, and, um, and, and I'll just kind of, you know, paint it in broad strokes, is that in the era where melanoma was being accurately diagnosed, there were many people who developed tuberculosis and many other infectious diseases. But tuberculosis was highly communicative 
and before antibiotics existed, largely fatal. Um, but once in a while, there were patients who overcame their tuberculosis, whose immune system was actually able to conquer the tuberculosis, and they recovered. And there were some patients with melanoma who also developed tuberculosis, and they probably mostly died of tuberculosis because tuberculosis killed more quickly. But of the patients with melanoma who developed tuberculosis and who in that very small group maybe recovered from the tuberculosis after having a life-threatening, enormously inflammatory disease, which is the pneumonia the tuberculosis caused, of those survivors of tuberculosis, there was apparently a tiny percent, a couple percent of those melanoma patients whose melanoma went away. And that probably was the birth of cancer immunotherapy because something happened as a consequence of having this huge inflammatory reaction in the person's body. I don't think anybody suspected that the tuberculosis bacteria were controlling melanoma per se. They're not for sure because the tuberculosis went away, but the melanoma didn't stay or didn't come back. So there was something about the inflammatory response that apparently evoked a remission. And in some cases, it was a permanent remission. That's a, a very, very interesting story. I, I'm going to leave it for now just because I want you obviously to go into immunotherapy in, you know, in detail. That's, that's kind of where we are right now. Let's uh, spend a little bit more time on this history of, of mine. So I found another musician in this history. I don't know if you know him, but John Kirkwood is, is a guy who figures in, in melanoma history uh, because he's also a viola player, a viola player, I, I believe. But anyway, he went on to co-found the Yale Melanoma Unit uh, with Stephen uh, Arian in 1976. Where were we in the 70s when it comes to melanoma? Give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, what, what was happening then? Was there any treatments available? Uh, it, clearly, there was a melanoma unit. What were the, these guys doing? So before I answer your question, um, I've played chamber music with John. Um, and in fact, in fact, it was even at a melanoma meeting in Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. But we also played with his mom, his mother, who played the violin and also went to the Curtis Institute of Music a few years before me, I will admit. But uh, we had a wonderful time. So yes, you're absolutely right. Music and medicine do go together. Um, <laughs> so John is a, is a fabulous melanoma researcher who's, who's really brought so much to the field and um, so where were we in the 1970s? So in, in the 1970s, there was enormous passion and excitement and uh, ferment of, of research interests in trying to move the bar in the melanoma field because there was this persistent signal um, that I would, and I apologize for oversimplifying this, but I would basically say harkens back to those tuberculosis melanoma patients in the 1800s, where there was this very, very small signal, 2% of patients, 3% of patients, where miraculous outcomes occurred. So what did people do in you know the subsequent, call it 100 years, up to get till you know the 1970s or so. Well, they tried to vaccinate people. They didn't want to give them tuberculosis, but they would give them you know, vaccines of tuberculosis or other pro-inflammatory strategies. And what happened was 
about one, two, or three percent of patients would have a miraculous response. And the remaining 95-ish percent would have nothing happen or minimal happen. And it was the fact that the signal was not zero, it was not great, but it was not zero. And you had investigators like John Kirkwood and, and others, many others, who could not ignore this signal. Something very important was happening. And many of us saw these patients, recommended patients, patients for, in some cases, enormously risky, highly inflammatory, and in fact, even life-threatening treatments, seeking to get that 2% cure. Because obviously for a patient, there was no, it's not 2%, it's 100% or it's zero. And that's, I think, where the field was in the 70s. Unfortunately, the bar had not moved very far from then. There were better surgical techniques. There was much better supportive care. That is true. There was much more understood scientifically about the disease, about the diagnostics, about the molecular features of the disease, um, the, the epidemiology of the disease, the relationship to UV radiation, believe it or not, was uncovered around the 70s and 60s. That's something that I wanted to point out because uh, I wanted to bring up that the Skin Cancer Foundation only was founded in 1979, this time by Perry Robbins, right? So himself a uh, surgeon, I believe, and a, and a medical pioneer. But anyway, and I think he is credited for changing how people thought about the sun because there's a dis d dimension here in melanoma, which is this oscillation between research or what can we do versus public outreach for, you know, what can the public do to protect themselves? And I, I found some, some evidence here that in these early days when people didn't really understand what tanning was, uh, the SPFs, which by the way, even SPF seems to not have been a concept around then, but they were using SPFs down to like two, <laughs> they were not using sunblock exactly. So, so even at the end of the seventies, this was the start of the awareness, which became so great. Can you kind of, as we move into the 80s and, you know, now you get into maybe more of that where you started to, to take an interest in this yourself, um, what started to happen with, with this awareness campaign? Because I know that you very much care about that and we'll get to impact melanoma, and, you know, in a second as well. How did this awareness happen? Was it in any way directly related to the science or was it just that these pioneers also simultaneously felt like, well, we can't fix this, but we at least have to say something. Yeah, I, I would say, I think it was a parallel process. Um, if you step back, I can say as an oncologist, and you look across the spectrum of human cancers, and you ask how many cancers in man have a known cause, you can name them on one hand as compared to the number of cancers that exist out there. In other words, most cancers, we don't. I mean, we can, obviously, tobacco, cigarette smoke, and certain types of lung cancers, not all lung cancers, but certain types of lung cancers. Um, you know, there are some hormonal connections, but you can't say that because you have testosterone in your body, you're going to get prostate cancer, or because you have female hormones, you're going to get breast cancer. It, it just simply isn't that way. Ultraviolet radiation and melanoma, as well as the common non-melanoma skin cancers, is 
without a doubt, in my mind, the most striking, and I would say this is with the exception of the virus-induced cancers, which is an unfortunately growing field, um, but what certainly was not understood yet uh, in back in the 70s, by and large, um, except maybe hepatitis. And there, there were a few examples, uh, which, which are very important as well. But for an environmentally associated malignancy, um, the relationship between ultraviolet radiation and skin cancer, and especially the most lethal of those being melanoma, um, was, I, I would say, a, a loud scream, you know, in a dark world, because it, it was an opportunity. I, I, I hate to say this because I feel this is embarrassment to, to our, the state of our knowledge right now, but it, we're not much better in 2021 than we were in the 1970s or the 1960s when these relationships were first recognized and, and first highlighted and the first attempts were made to do something about it. Um, but, but I think it's, it is a, a really uh, a standout in the, in the entire world of oncology that here we actually have a known culprit and we continue to do so poorly in, in preventing melanoma. Well, David, you're you're obviously very humble, and we'll get to exactly what it is that that you do very very soon. Um, talk to me a little bit about this ABCD rule, because people who have been affected, or indeed any parent, uh, will have been exposed to this rule. So ABCDs: asymmetry, border irregularity, color variegation, and diameter greater than six millimeters. So this seems to have been a notion invented in 1985 by. Alfred Kopf, who was the editor of the Melanoma Letter, I don't know if you you, you read that Melanoma Letter, but it gets you know circulated and is uh, kind of an information source, I guess, in a hybrid between kind of public and and professional. Mm -hmm. Now, how what, what's the story of this heuristic? Do you, is it still useful? Uh, and what did it do? What did this ABCD language change, if anything? I think. Um... I, I think it, it heightened awareness. You know, it, there's something, I hate to say easy because I'm oversimplifying, oversimplifying, but when you, you know, refer to the first few letters of the alphabet, you know, you, you have the impression that this is knowable. I, I don't have to, you know, be able to explain, you know, the dimensions of the nucleus of a cell or something complicated like that. I just have to remember a couple of letters. And, um, and it, it set the stage for the concept I think a very, very important concept that early diagnosis may save somebody's life. That is not universally understood. Um, it, it is not necessarily the case that being diagnosed isn't 100% bad news. Many people would say being diagnosed with cancer is something I never want to have happen under any circumstance. Whereas actually being diagnosed with melanoma, roughly six out of seven times right now means you will be cured just by having that lesion removed because most melanomas are thin, they're early stage, and they're curable if you find it at that stage. And, and in fact, the vast majority are caught at early stages because people pay attention to those features that define the A, B, C, D. And, and I would add the E that many people describe, E for evolving. And if there were one letter to perhaps put above all other letters, I would probably put E because a changing pigmented lesion on your skin ought to be checked out. You know, it's it's just, it's that simple. It's not a, a very complicated, you know, and, and probably the vast majority of them are fine. They're probably not melanoma. They, they may be something completely different, but the, the evolution of something from, 
you know, I didn't see this before. I, I see this now, you know, it, it's kind of driving me crazy. It may take a dermatologist all of five minutes, maybe one minute, maybe 30 seconds to tell you what it actually is and it's nothing or to check it or perhaps biopsy it or even remove it. And even if it were melanoma, um, a, a reasonably high chance that it will have been cured at that stage by having collected it at an early, at an early stage. Okay, so David, bring us into the 90s, because uh, uh, your, your friend John Kirkwood, right, back in 1996, he had by this time convinced the FDA, uh, perhaps not alone, but in a group to, to actually approve uh, this pivotal trial that led to the approval of one of the first uh, inhibitors, uh, or certainly one of the first antivirals uh, for metastatic melanoma, which uh, appears to have been the first kind of randomized trial for, for, for this uh, disease. And, and there were, I, I think, a couple of other drugs that started to come on the market. Arguably not the game changer, though, as you were saying. What, what was the 90s like? This is a whole decade, which which I still remember, right? It's a, And it's, a, you know, to personalize it a little bit, it's, it's kind of interesting to me because uh, my father had a mole, which he must have acquired when he was a kid in Madagascar in like 1948. But anyway, it stayed quiet until 1992. And some of it was removed, uh, but in 1997, it got metastatic. And, you know, unfortunately for him, it went enormously fast between he was basically cleared after a five-year control saying it's gone. Uh, and then suddenly it reappeared as a stage four. So it's kind of personal to me to understand what happens now in 1997. What is reasonable to be expecting? So FDA has approved a drug. How efficient is that drug? I was in Norway at the time. I don't know exactly if that was approved internationally. Where are we in the 90s? Just give us a little bit of a sense. We are a tiny bit further than we were in the 70s. Um, there were signals. Um, I would say in terms of therapeutic efficacy, we were a little bit better. However, where we were much, much better is that there was an army of people who were thinking about this. And there was a factory of tools that were aligned and ready to attack to try and understand what this disease was about. And by the 90s, by the mid to late 90s, already many of the molecular underpinnings of melanoma and the underpinnings of the normal function of melanocytes, the cell that gives rise to melanoma, were starting to be dissected and unraveled and understood. And this set the stage for, I would say, the two parallel real explosions in the field, understanding signaling, which ended up with the discovery of the BRAF mutation, and the very important role of the immune system that undoubtedly harken back to these early clinical observations of efficacy of inflammatory triggers in causing remissions of melanoma. They were already in the 1990s. Uh, mouse models, you know, preclinical models suggesting that somebody could induce autoimmunity and in a mouse model of melanoma see regressions uh, there were a number of studies where people were able to cure mouse melanomas by activating the immune system. So the, the, the stage was set. The therapies were not really in play in a successful fashion, but there was a hint that these were well on the way. 
That's interesting because uh, so in, in my little story here, I found that in 1998, the FDA approved another drug, interleukin-2. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the study I found said that it had a meager 20% five-year survival for stage four. So that's where we, or that's one, one article about where we were. Would you say that's a fair that's a fair statement. So back in the late 90s, that's where we were with the field. That is right. That, that is right. I, again, the science in animals, for example, was showing some very impressive hints with checkpoint inhibitors. So immune checkpoint inhibitors were already, you know, a thing. You know, they were, they were largely being studied in the context of autoimmune disease. What prevents our body's immune system from attacking our normal cells? And, um, and in the process of studying that, people made antibodies, they discovered the regulators of these checkpoints that we now attack with drugs, um, and along the way saw that they could tweak the activity of these tolerance pathways and, and actually cause autoimmunity. And along the way, as people could cause autoimmunity, they did this in a mouse where they could also give that mouse a tumor wondering whether the tumor would be attacked even more than the the body of of where autoimmunity was being introduced as well. And they could see those kinds of regressions. So David, this brings us to your research. And I don't know if you are active uh, on both of those. I certainly know that, you know, the uh, uh, MITF gene is, is kind of and the the melanocyte has been a, a central part of what you ended up focusing on. Can you bring us into your thinking of when you you know you know started your lab or when you got really deeply involved in these studies? So which of these paths were you pursuing? And maybe you could just briefly kind of expa- explain what's happening. What is the this uh, B- BRAF signaling, and 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 then what happened to the immune system therapies that now are so you know, in, in such a fruitful stage. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I can give a little bit of background of how I got involved in all of this. Um, for me, it was really accidental. I, I was um, I was called up by somebody who had cloned a gene that was involved in mice. Um, when this gene was mutated, the mouse had white spots and uh, and small eyes. And, uh, and the uh, geneticist, the mouse geneticist, Nancy Jenkins, um, called me up and said, you know, I, I'm really good at analyzing the genes. We've got this st- very interesting looking gene, but it, we, the, the kinds of biochemical studies that are needed to understand how it works are things that you are working on. And I was just starting my lab at Dana-Farber, as you mentioned. And so she said, you know, can I give you some of the gene information? Can you study the biochemistry? And like, what is this? You know, what, what is so important that, that regulates pigmentation in the mouse? Um, the small eyes gave the name of this gene microphthalmia. And it was easy, my lab together with hers, to figure out that this was, uh, and, and Heinz Arnheiter and a number of other scientists who did great work early on in this field, realized that this gene was encoding a transcription factor. So that became called the microphthalmia transcription factor or MITF. And that was this gene that, that, that Nancy and her lab had, had cloned and identified. Um, what we did was to generate the, the gene, study what it was actually doing and, and um, very quickly when I was just starting my lab, I mean, I was very young, I was you know, straight out of the gate, but realized very strikingly that this MITF factor regulated the entire pigmentation pathway. 
um, in a singular and kind of overarching fashion. It's now being called by many the master regulator of pigmentation. So all the enzymes and all of the, the factory components that make melanin are directly activated. Uh, I shouldn't say all, but probably almost all of them are directly activated by MITF. Um, and, and, and I was being pulled into the skin field and the melanoma field. I was an oncologist. And, uh, and in fact, most of my clinical work was pediatric oncology at Dana-Farber. And, um, and I was actually a little bit embarrassed that here I was studying pigmentation. I, I felt like I was like doing cosmetics research or something, you know, and as an oncologist, that was felt like a really embarrassing thing to be spending my time doing until it occurred to me that the presence of pigment in skin is probably the most powerful predictor of protection against any cancer that exists in oncology. How many variants are there um, of normal variants where you could point to one single variable and that it would be the presence of dark pigment in skin and see hundreds to thousands fold levels of protection against melanoma or against other forms of UV-associated skin cancers. Hmm. So suddenly I found myself looking at this and saying, wait a minute, there's something really important going on here. Um, and I realized that MITF was in the middle of it. And, and so one of the first things we studied is how does UV stimulate the production of pigment? Why is it that red-haired individuals cannot tan, can only burn? And from that, we made a mouse model of, of red-headed mice, little rusty. That's where we get to me, by the way. You know what, what the doctor said to me in high school in the U.S.? He said, you are made for indoor use, <laughs> is what he told me. <laughs> I think they, they, they could maybe develop better language around these things, but uh, he got his point <laughs> yeah. across, yeah. yeah. So, so interesting. Um, I read one place that uh, around 50% of melanomas actually are caused by this uh, mutation that you're talking about now. Is, is that still the case around, around thereabout? Do you think it's that effective? That, uh, yes. So the, the BRAF oncogene is, is mutated in about half of melanomas. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And moles, benign moles, it's probably a higher percent, maybe 70% or so. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously most moles will never go on to form melanoma. So now we are uh, around 2002, I believe, with the discovery of this mutation. Uh, and then it took uh, FDA 10 years to approve a, uh, the first uh, uh, BRAF inhibitor, the vemurafenib, I believe. Mm -hmm. And there are now several drugs. So explain a little bit what, what happens there and how much of a game changer this now becomes, you know, once it's approved as a as a drug, not you know, out of the lab and, and into medicine. So what is remarkable about the, the BRAF-targeted drugs that are FDA-approved and are used is that they have an enormously high predictability in terms of their response to treatment. Unfortunately, they have a high likelihood of acquiring resistance at a later phase. Um, and that feature, as frustrating as it is, and it's extremely frustrating, obviously, is common of this class of targeted therapies across the world of oncology. It is not only true for BRAF, and it's not only true for melanoma. 
Um, there are other examples of kinase inhibitors that are used to target a mutated oncoprotein in, in other forms of cancer. And while they often work initially, with time, they tend to fail. Hmm. Um, there are some broad themes that this has pounded us over the head with repeatedly, which is that the cancer cells are deviously wiring themselves to survive. Essentially, this is population biology, and it is purely survival of the fittest. Hmm. So when you have a large population of cells and you exert a selective pressure, in this case, even the selective pressure that is attacking the very engine that caused that tumor to grow, if there is any mechanism that would allow escape so that some of those, even if you killed 99.9999999, but you started with a peanut-sized lesion that actually is 10 to the 13th cells, you actually have a formidable number of remaining cells even if you've killed 99.9999999. And, so and this, David is, this, David, is when we get back to your friend John Kirkwood, because as late, I believe, as 2008, he wrote that not one of the treatments that we have brought forward to phase two trials really had significantly improved either the time to progression or the survival of our patients. It is staggering to me that that was the case. Then talk to me about the other, arguably, game changer, immunotherapy. What, when did people then, when did your lab discover that this was interesting and uh, where are we now with immunotherapy and what kinds of, you know, what is actually melanoma immunotherapy? Yeah, let, let me make one very brief comment about the lack of efficacy. You know, by 2008, chemotherapy had cured a number of human cancers. Not enough, I will admit. Um, in, in my clinical domain, which was pediatric oncology, the most common childhood cancer is leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which had a very, has fortunately a, a relatively high cure rate. And it's like six or seven drugs for two years, very, very toxic and curative. Um, why did melanoma not even change? when these drugs were applied? Why did it not change in response to toxic doses of radiation therapy that could cure Hodgkin's disease and could cure disease after disease, melanoma? Nothing happened. And I actually believe there's a reason for this, a very simple reason, which is that melanoma is a cancer of a cell that lived under the sun. Our melanocytes have evolved to survive UV radiation in our skin. And in fact, unlike many other skin cells that when you burn, for example, will slough off, and even the normal development and differentiation of many of our cells in the skin, they slough off with time. The melanocytes don't, they're there to stay. Because if you burn and you go out the next day to go to the beach again, if you're lucky, your melanocytes will make melanin to protect you. So our melanocytes will take that damage, will mutate the genomes and survive. I believe our melanocytes are hardwired to resist all those toxic features of chemotherapy and radiation therapy because of the very role they have in our skin. And that is why as recently as 2008, all those treatments 
did nothing for practical. I, it's not fair to say they did nothing, but they did almost nothing. And then along came a very interesting twist on that story, which is immunotherapy. Because in immunotherapy, the presence of all those mutations in the genomes of the melanocytes that became melanoma suddenly became a target. Because melanoma cells are the clonal outgrowth of skin cells that have received usually thousands of mutations from ultraviolet radiation. And those mutations change the proteins in that cell different from every other cell in our body. So to our immune system, that cell actually can look foreign. Hmm. We think of cancer and the immune system as a hopeless quest because our immune systems are programmed not to kill our normal cell. So you could say, and as many did as recently as 15, 20 years ago, forget about it. The immune system will never work or you'll just have autoimmunity. How can you ever discern cancer from normal? Because our cancers are our own cells. But in this instance, those heavy doses of mutations from ultraviolet radiation actually had chemical signatures that allowed the immune system to discriminate. And that to this day we believe is at least part of the story of why immunotherapy can work for melanoma and to a large extent why it works better for melanoma than almost any other cancer in man. Well, the results are certainly uh, astounding, at least if you, and this may not be up to date, but I quoted here from 2020, a study that says 13 new treatments approved uh, you know, since 2007, and all immunotherapy type treatments for melanoma. That's, uh, and then the other thing I wanted to understand is that um, with immunotherapy, suddenly radiation and other types of ingredients come back on the scene. Localized radio uh, radiation therapy has suddenly now become a key ingredient again, if I'm right. How, especially for recurrence, how on earth does that now happen? So what has, what has happened as people have analyzed what allows the immune system to successfully recognize a melanoma and, and regress a melanoma is that the presence of mutations in the melanoma actually can help the immune response. And the presence of inflammation within a tumor can help the immune response to engender the inflammation that will regress the tumor. So radiation is now an area of very great excitement, radiation immunotherapy combinations, because radiation can induce inflammation. It clearly causes inflammation. And in so doing, can actually feed the immune system and try to trigger an immune response where otherwise there wasn't one. I think there's the jury is out on exactly how much efficacy that will add, but um, that approach and, and many other approaches at trying to rev up the immune response, I think is represents one big area of, of active investigation right now that hopefully will allow some of the 50 to 70% of patients now who are not getting adequate responses from immunotherapy to start shifting over into the group that does get a better response. David, put us into your lab. What are you working on right now? 
So many of these things that we we've gone through the, the the history, the troubled history of this field, and we are all the way up to date with immunotherapy. W- what do you spend your uh, your time with your uh, researchers? What are you doing now? What what kind of mouse models are you exploring? Where where is the field heading? Um, so I'll I'll share a couple of projects that we're we're actively working in. One of them is on this problem of melanomas that fail to respond. Why why would immunotherapy fail? Um, And one way we believe that melanomas can fail to respond to immunotherapy is if they have insufficient mutations. In other words, there's not enough foreignness in the melanoma for the immune system to dig its jaws in and, and attack. And so we have come up with some strategies aimed at artificially making the melanoma look inflamed with the goal of of allowing the immune system to attack um, in a fashion that is imitating autoimmune disease. There's some mechanistic details that are complex. Um, But I would say this is, I think, very important in the melanoma field for tumors that don't have a lot of UV ultraviolet radiation-associated mutations, and also for other types of cancers. Most cancers in man don't respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So could there be strategies like what we're trying to approach that might apply to other forms of cancers? Hmm. Um, so so that's what you're doing in the lab. Can you tell us a little bit, so I'm sure there's a couple of other projects you want, you want to uh, tell us about, but Traditionally, in in many fields of medicine, you kind of you know you do your research in, in in the lab, and then it's kind of either stays in the lab, and then it goes fairly quickly to uh, you know to, to a large pharmaceutical that then licenses this technology. Lately, however, and certainly in immunotherapy, there are a bunch of startups out there. What is what is the role? And and they are quite recent, actually. Many of these uh, immunotherapy startups. What would you say the role uh, is going to be of a kind of melanoma startups? Because that used to be that the common wisdom was, you know, it's such a small field. Like, you know, yes, oncology startups, we can maybe start talking about that. But but you know, melanoma that is such a, a niche field. What do you think the role will be of 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 therapies? Is it possible to to envision that there's a big sort of plethora of, of, of growing startups that actually can make a, a, a dent with, with that specific of a focus? Yeah, I, I actually do feel that that, that is the case. Um, so I, I think that um, the, the landscape has changed in the sense that <clears throat> I think a lot of the most innovative research, and you might say high reward high-risk research is happening in, in small companies that are trying to develop a, a therapeutic strategy born out of academia in most cases, but which larger pharmaceutical companies would consider way too risky, um, and, and especially because they don't have that expertise, uh, whereas the small, nimble pharma- biotech company you know, founded by the scientist or a smaller group of scientists that really have expertise in this area um, hope to develop it to a stage where then the larger pharmaceutical company would say, ah, okay, let's acquire this and now put our big factory to work and try to develop this into something. And, and I think there are some very nice examples of this. And, uh, and it's not only true in immunotherapy, it's also true in targeted therapies. Um, and, and I think that that partnership, that combination, uh, I, I believe is, is one of the most successful and, and optimistic um, opportunities we have for progress in the in the next decade or two 
Well, that's funny you you uh, got to that question. I'm going to ask you kind of where 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 we're heading with melanoma. But right before that, I, we should address why we're even talking because uh, you know I ran the marathon, the Boston Marathon this year with Impact Melanoma, and that is a charity that you are are quite involved with. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved with an awareness initiative for melanoma? Because that is you know, it's quite different from, from research. Uh, you know, why are you involved and, and what is your role at, at Impact Melanoma? Yeah, so, you know, th- this actually goes back to the beginning of our conversation, which is that melanoma, I feel, I, I, I can't be a, a researcher um, or a physician engaged with patients and not recognize that in our particular field of melanoma, um, there are behaviors, there are environmental risks, there are exposures that ought to offer opportunities to impact patients, impact their families, um, even without having a therapy for advanced melanoma, things that that might lead to prevention, might might lead to lower likelihood and and, and that sort of thing. Um, And and so this is what draws me to this concept. And and I feel very, very passionately about this. In fact, I've, I've had a major research project in my laboratory that was focusing on the question of why people feel good in the sun. And um, That's funny yeah. you said that because I was going to just ask you about this tanning addiction theory where elevated beta endorphins are released after UV exposure. So you actually have discovered that this might be true. So it... It does seem to be the case. Basically, what what we discovered is that in the pathway through which UV radiation stimulates pigment synthesis, the tanning pathway, there is an unmistakable synthesis of both the melanin and endorphin. In fact, they come from a common precursor. They're cut apart from each other. The melanocyte-stimulating hormone goes off to produce melanin, an endorphin is released and makes its way into the blood. And, um, and so it's, it's actually, in fact, most recently, just this year, we published a paper that suggests this was not an accidental coincidence. This was not just sort of a bad news thing. This probably was a life-saving opiate addiction. Life-saving because perhaps there was a time in evolution where seeking the sun would have saved the lives. So imagine you're living, let's say, Norway, Scandinavia, 10,000 years ago, and it's in the middle of winter and you're living in a cave because it's a little warmer in there. But if you stay in that cave all winter long and your children stay in that cave all winter long and get zero sunlight, they will have extremely severe vitamin D deficiency which causes a disease called rickets. And in childhood, severe rickets is fatal because you cannot absorb calcium and you cannot make bones. So if you had a pathway organically encoded in your genes that made you feel crappy by staying in that cave, but if you would go outside for 10 minutes and feel great, and you even had an opiate-like addiction to that, so that when you go back in that cave, if you don't come out, you'll feel extra crappy that might have saved the species. And um, we speculate that it was because of vitamin D that this may have actually been the place where addictive behavior was a positive thing in evolution. 
Um, but unfortunately, where it comes to skin cancer and ultraviolet exposure, this is unfortunately flipped on its head. And, and I, I would, I have to add, um, I was passionately pushed towards my outreach and impact melanoma and, and other activities in this area by the indoor tanning industry that um, purposely misquoted me at one point in a, uh, an interview where, where they said, uh, they, they published someplace, Harvard researcher claims that, um, how, how was this? I think I, I made the comment that having dark tan a dark tan can actually be preventative, can can diminish UV radiation, and it can diminish melanoma risk. And they they misquoted it as something along the lines of, Harvard researcher says that tanning can decrease your risk of melanoma, um, rather than that the melanin has a protective effect. And I was so outraged, uh, and and wanted them to change the wording and be more accurate that I, I instead decided to testify at FDA on the hazards of indoor tanning. And fortunately, there have been some very impactful changes in, in legislation and access to, to indoor tanning industry. Um, but, but that is where my passion comes for this. I, I really believe there is an opportunity to, um, to, to diminish what the risk is. I don't think we can diminish it down to zero, but I think that, um, that sun protective behaviors, that uh, better education, um, both for patients and, and family members of children, so on, um, really can have beneficial effects. There's a very complicated story right now with sunscreen ingredients, and um, and I think FDA and others need to step up and and help us in protecting our skin in that setting as well. Um, so I, I believe there's an enormous opportunity there, and and it's something I'm I'm very eager to remain engaged with. Well, that's that's great to hear. I mean, certainly uh, the stories of uh, even all the influencers who are rallying around this cause of of actually you know, using sunscreen wisely and, and nearly always, I guess, when you're outside. And certainly that's been part of, uh, of my life. So, so lastly, then, what, what's going to be the verdict on melanoma 10 years from now? So we've talked about this in terms of decades, and let's call it this is a very rosy decade. Is there a reason why the progress would continue apace, accelerate, slow down? Where, where are we going? So I, I believe that the progress um, has been within the last one to two decades, it's, it's been fits and starts. Um, it has not been a linear boost. Um, there have been a couple of major breakthroughs. Um, I would also add uh, that these have not been predictable. Um, it was awfully lucky that I, I say that with, you know, I, I wish I could say that, you know, we in the scientific community knew what we were doing. It, it, I, I think we were at least prepared to embrace the successes and to learn from them and, and hopefully push that arrow further to where it needs to be. But much of this was accidental. And what has happened and what, what I think my reason for being optimistic is that our minds are even more prepared. The tools are better, more refined. Um, and the field has evolved to a point where we can ask very difficult questions more quickly. Hmm. We know how to do the studies. Um, and, and, and by the studies, I mean in the laboratory, and I mean with patients, the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, the epidemiology industry, the big data, artificial intelligence industry. These fields have converged to quickly and very, very rigorously analyze the data and, and pour, put forth strategies to improve things. So my belief 
is that we are better um, be- better set for that progress as it is going to happen now than ever before, but I don't know what that progress is going to be because the majority of our attempts are still failing. Even with immune therapy and checkpoint inhibitors, um, as new candidates are tested in the laboratory, the majority of them have not lived up to what the hope was, even just within the past few years. There is one on the way that is probably going to be FDA approved, not a total game changer to our, to the best of our knowledge as, as anti-PD-1 was, um, but there is a ferment, there, there is, a, there is a, uh, an environment of discovery. People are doing so many experiments. Um, melanoma is a popular field for people to go into because there is a sense that, there are, that this is crumbling in front of our eyes. It, it may take years still, but, um, but we smell it and we taste it. And, and for that reason, I remain very optimistic. Well, thanks, David. I, I, I'm glad we can end on that optimistic note, but I do understand that that's science. You can be cautiously optimistic, but then the discoveries, they will follow or, or not, and you can't. Uh, it doesn't matter, in a sense, how many people or how many dollars you you know or euros you throw after this. The discoveries have to prove out. Uh, but it's been a it's a fascinating journey that you are on, and um, I thank you so much for elucidating this somewhat complex topic to understand. It's not very obvious, is it? How, where where it's gone? I agree. I agree. We yeah. we learn a lot uh, from the voyage itself. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. You have just listened to episode 138 of the Futurize podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in any of Tron's products or services, feel free to check out futurize.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy any of Tron's books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from below. If you are interested in any of Tron's projects, check out his website, trondundheim.com, which has links to his other podcasts, as well as his public appearances. The topic this time was the future of melanoma research, and we talked about its evolution and the advances made in recent years. My takeaway is that melanoma is still a fear-inducing disease, which has drastic consequences for the patients who contract it. On the other hand, the medical community has made significant advances against it in recent years. But it has taken time, a lot of attempts, and the battle is far from over. Immunotherapy has proven to be a game-changer, but will all patients get this type of therapy in time, and who will bear the costs? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 149 on melanoma awareness, episode 147, Health Tech Reboot, or episode 88 on the future of virtual care. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network, which lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists. Please share this show with those you care about. And to find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. 
See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.